mortgage finance system is not fixed. And I really want to push, tried to push back against this narrative of nothing to see here, move forward. And it's taken, of course, record spreads and more than doubling of mortgage rates since I left office to kind of bring attention to this. But it really is a call for kind of taking a focus and thinking about fixing our mortgage market now while we can. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Rood. Welcome to Citus AMC's On the Hill, where I'll be speaking with industry leaders to help you navigate the wilds of Washington, D.C. We discuss policymaking, regulations, compliance, compliance issues, and other big trends shaping the residential real estate and mortgage markets. My guest today is Mark Calabria. Mark is the former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, better known as FHFA, which of course regulates and supervises Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the 12 federal home loan banks. Now, during his service at the agency, Mark led the response to COVID-19 as well as laid the groundwork for removal of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from government conservatorship. He also drafted significant portions of the Housing Economic Recovery Act, HERA, back in 2008, which ironically is actually the legislation that gave them the authorities to resolve Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and put them into conservatorship. So HERA created a new regulatory framework for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the federal home loan banks. Prior to joining FHFA in 2019, Mr. Calabria was chief economist for Vice President Mike Pence, And he also spent eight years as a director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. And he served as a senior aide on the Senate Committee for Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Mark Calabria, welcome back to On the Hill. We're honored to have you return to the podcast for a second time, which ironically is a first for us. (laughs) Well, it's such a pleasure, and I'm honored to be the first second timer. (laughs) Thanks, Mark, for doing this. So last time we chatted, you were director of FHFA. So it's it's been a minute. First off, what have you been up to since you left FHFA in 21? So most of my time has been at the Cato Institute. I have a a new book out primarily about my time at FHFA focused mostly on the pandemic. I mean, the title is Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. And that's really been the primary focus, been doing a little advisory work here and there, mostly industry-related, a little speaking, uh, speaking tour, not just book-related, but conferences and such. So, of course, if listeners would like me to come speak at a conference near you, just feel free to reach out. Well, the book is definitely worth the price of entry, I would say. I thought it was great. I bought it when I was at your, I guess, book signing at Cato, probably a year and change ago, probably, something like that. And for those who have not had the chance to read it, it is really interesting and entertaining. And it's a look at the crisis, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic and the crisis that ensued afterwards and, and really how the government managed through a national crisis. Obviously, this is a perfect use case for what they were prone to do in a crisis environment and the things you need to consider. But I thought it was really cool how it focused on the successes and failure of government policy, just interventions into the housing market more generally, which of course is where most of us live and breathe and you know spend most of our time. Thank you. I, mean, I do think that the, I attempt to be really quite candid and, and maybe I'll use the, my editor at one point in the process says to me, you know, Mark, you're, you're on one hand, you're, you're pretty complimentary toward Fannie and Freddie industry. On the other hand, you're, you're often critical. And I'm like, you know, it's complicated. And that's really the book. I mean, there's a lot of when somebody deserves a shout out, they get it. Maybe a chapter later, they might get criticized for something different. And I also try to be candid about the uncertainties we were facing because I wanted to kind of give the reader a sense of, you know, what is it like to kind of be in the fog of a crisis and trying to make decisions? Did you have a couple of key takeaways that you wanted folks to really get yeah. from reading this book? Maybe a tease out a couple, one or two things? I- Absolutely, absolutely. So the first one <laughs> might seem a bit mundane, but uh, program design matters. Like a big theme of the book is, you know, why wasn't the housing market the shoe to drop in 2020? 
And there's really a lot of conversation about my takeaways from 2008 and why we did things differently and why I think it's important for next time. Obviously, we hope there's not another pandemic, but the housing is cyclical. There'll be another downturn at some point. So what can we do not to repeat 2008? So a lot of discussion about getting the structure of the programs right. For those who know me, another theme that may not be terribly uh, surprising is that, you know, I really argue that principle matters. You know, you often kind of hear this, you got to be pragmatic. The way I put it is, uh, you know, if you're driving your principles, your ideology, if you want to go that far, is your map of the world. And my argument is you drive into a patch of fog, you need to map more than ever. And I think there's so much an attitude, you know, in crises to abandon principle. The old George W. Bush point in 2008 about, you know, we had to abandon capitalism to save it. Well, you know, I argue in the book that that's the wrong approach and why I think sticking to principle in a data-driven manner is incredibly important. And then the big takeaway, and it's funny, we're seeing so much of this now in the mortgage market with record spreads. A lot of the conversation in the book is the mortgage finance system is not fixed. And I really want to push, tried to push back against this narrative of nothing to see here, move forward. And it's taken, of course, record spreads and more than doubling of mortgage rates since I left office to kind of bring attention to this. But it really is a call for kind of taking a focus and thinking about fixing our mortgage market now while we can. Uh, or as I um, said a lot when I was director you know, the time to fix the roof is when is when the sun is shining and yeah, it's a little cloudy out today, but we should start doing some work on that. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I, I totally agree on all of the above. I mean, it's interesting when you think about the principles and it's, I guess it's comforting to think that folks have principles that are making these decisions. And obviously, you know, a lot of the policymakers, lawmakers are going to have different ideals, different principles, different ends in minds and therefore different means in minds. Did you find a couple of prevailing principles that you think people kind of latched onto or came around to that were kind of central to the policies that you guys implemented? I mean, certainly I think the approach that that I took in the administration approach, I mean, I I think unfortunately much of Capitol Hill is is simply driven by kind of coalitional tribal politics. You know, I mean, maybe the best example of this I talk about in the book is we see a lot of concern today, you know, about the Basel capital standards for banks. And honestly, it's a little weird to me to see people who are defending higher capital for banks be some of the first people who would criticize me or ask me questions about higher capital for the GSEs. You know, again, I think Fannie Mae and I think Citibank are both large financial institutions that should be well regulated. But unfortunately, in Washington, the reality is the view, one's view on financial regulation often depends on whether the targeted party is part of your political coalition or not. So again, part of the why I felt so strongly about writing the book was really kind of make this argument for a greater principled approach to financial regulation and policymaking writ large. I mean, and again, you see this every day, not to go completely sideways as a conversation, but if you look at a lot of the anger at the uh, Ivy League presidents, it's not because they are too pro-free speech. It's because their free speech principles are completely situational. Free speech for you in this sense, it's not free speech here. And again, the argument really is, if you have a set of principles, one of which is you save yourself a lot of work as a regulator if you don't second-guess Congress. You know, and and I was very pleasantly surprised that you know people would often ask me to do things that that, that I didn't have the statutory authority. And once they understood it wasn't about them, and it was about that's Congress's job. Ninety nine percent of the people accepted that and moved on. But it's also to think more clearly in terms of how the housing and mortgage market. If you if you think about it fundamentally, what Fannie, Freddie, FHA, a lot of what you're trying to do is change the mortgage market and change the housing market via the mortgage market. And I really make an argument for the book of you cannot be effective of that if you don't start from a view on how it works. And so 
I'm very critical of a lot of policies that end up just pushing up demand when the problem today fundamentally is supply, for instance. But unless you start out with a framework of how you think the housing market works, then you're just kind of guessing. And again, that's really what I wanted to push back on and to get away from this, you know, just asking a bunch of interest groups what they think the problem is and starting from the premise of first, I mean, what, you know, what are your statutory legal responsibilities as an agency, but also fundamentally, what is the market problem you're trying to fix? Hey, Mark, you know, as you were saying this, it made me think that it still feels like there's quite a, a lot of guessing about what this market should be and what it isn't or what it's lacking. Uh, That's fair. I mean, and some of it is this time horizons and a lot of it, you know, I say in the book that 80% of debates about Fannie, Freddie and mortgage finance regulation are really fundamentally about market share. Rocket versus Wells, if you, if you will. And again, I got that pretty regularly where people would tell me, it's like, I don't actually, you know, I had a few CEOs that occasionally say in the business, you know, I don't really care what the absolute cost is. I mean, they do, but they fundamentally, that's secondary to what's my cost relative to other market players. And so you really cannot understand the current structure and current debate within mortgage finance unless you really understand that a lot of it is fundamentally about market share. And, you know, I think there's often a misperception that I favor some parts of the market over the other. No, I favor a level playing field, but because so much of Washington is viewed through coalitional politics, when you take the view of like, no, I think we actually should have a neutral arbiter and this shouldn't be favoring X over Y, people don't expect that. And so I am, in a sense, trying to reset the debate that First, we should really start asking, what do we expect our mortgage finance system to achieve? Why is it there? Is it achieving that? And a good example of this that I have to admit a great deal of frustration around. So during my tenure, we saw some of the highest increases annualized in black home ownership you know, in American history. But we didn't do it by weakening underwriting standards. We did it on focusing on sustainability to make sure that when we got someone in a home, they were put in a sustainable situation. But the conversation today in Washington about access and home ownership is all about loosening underwriting standards, but actually with not even thinking about it. I mean, if I was going to be ungenerous, I would say the Biden administration approach is to see two families bidding vigorously over the one house that's available, and they think the solution is to add a third family. Right. rather than add another house. That's interesting. The way you said it, because a lot of this is uh, around policymaking and principles is kind of first do no harm. And But you're raising a great point, which is what the heck is the goal? If we don't want to do any harm, what are we trying to avoid? Yeah. And if you don't think clearly about that, you'll do harm. You know, again, and it's also, I mean, certainly you could have multiple objectives. And, and I think the Biden folks are straightforward that one of their objectives is a equity, but again, that racial homeownership gap declined during my tenure and has increased since I left. So you should kind of look at what worked rather than just sort of what are all the trades telling you, which again, I worked on the Hill, like White House and agency. Yes, it's critical that you meet with the trades and the lobbyists, but you also have to start from a premise of what is the framework you're thinking through and I really do think you get yourself in trouble as a, as a regulator or any sort of you know, executive if all you're trying to do is trade off against various constituencies without actually thinking about what you're fundamentally trying to achieve. And if what we're trying to achieve, for instance, is housing affordability, we're not doing a very good job at it. <laughs> well, I think you, you hit on a good one right there. You've touched on this before, which I love, and I've, I probably use without uh, footnoting you in numerous times, which is, you know, the federal government has got this paradoxical point of view of home ownership. It's got to be A, affordable. Oh, yeah. B, yep. it's got to be a good investment, which are obviously inconsistent thoughts. But it does beg the question, which is, well, which one is really more important? Is it a point in time or is it really just about, well, I'll, I'll say by the second question, is this just a point in time? What is it? Well, I mean, it's an attempt to please multiple 
constituencies. I mean, my, my view is housing is is a fundamental need, a basic necessity of life. And by and large, you know, if somebody told you that we wanted to make food a good investment, you know, we wanted to make baby food a good investment and, and you drove it up in price, we'd all be disgusted at that. Or we don't sit here when gas prices double and say, well, that's really great for the oil producers. Everybody should go out and buy gas stocks. No, we look at it and say, these are basic necessities of life. And our objective should be, how do we sustain the decline in price? So again, to me, I mean, I'm clear cut on what I think the objective here should be, which is at the end of the day, housing is a basic necessity and we should want basic necessities to become more affordable, not less. And that does fundamentally mean is what you've touched upon. They're not going to be good investments. In fact, there's this weirdness of on one hand, the Biden administration appropriately talks about supply issues, which are really the predominant problem. But at the same time, they're out there saying, oh, we're going to do down payment assistance and we're going to have higher debt to income. But they're setting up a situation where if they're successful on the supply, because let's be brutally honest about it, if you're successful at massively increasing housing supply, prices will come down. That's what you want. But you're doing that at the same time that you're putting homeowners into a situation of being underwater and overburdened. So which is it? I mean, you either don't think you're going to be successful on the supply or you simply don't care. I mean, again, I think the problem fundamentally is there really is not you know, a framework. The administration, again, it's not – they're reflecting – Washington, the stakeholders. And again, various stakeholders have various interests. Most of them, their interest is to make money. And homeownership's a great and good thing, but it's it's incidental to them being a their business being successful. But from a public policy perspective, you have to think clearly about what you're trying to achieve. And I and I do think that's I think we have a lot of muddled thinking in Washington when it comes to housing mortgage policy. Totally agree. And I'll give you a funny story. I was actually talking to my 80-odd-year-old mother uh, recently, and we were kind of discussing big housing topics. So for context, this is for the layman's. One of the observations was, as I was trying to articulate this sort of muddled message and potentially dubious politics are inconsistent with actual practices and governance, is just two fundamental data points. One, the homeownership rate writ large, and then black homeownership rate. Yeah. If you look at it just for the last 50 years, just from think about the Civil Rights Act, Housing Act from the 30s, whatever, you really haven't seen, at least in the last 50 years, any material change in either, certainly not positive changes, not sustainable yeah. policy changes, and actually black homeownership rates have gone down. This is despite 50-odd years of legislation, policymaking, money, energy, emphasis. The point is... Is it a matter of the policymaking being ineffective or essentially not looking at the real problem? Or is it politics essentially being trumped by good old-fashioned policymaking and governance that doesn't benefit from some of the political statements being made? So I should, again, start from the observation that despite the fact that Black ownership decreased the entire eight years of the Obama administration, it did hit bottom and increased through most of the Trump administration and certainly increased throughout my tenure on, on a trend line. Now, if you want to be generous, if you believe that what we've done for the last several decades has been effective, then your argument must be that you would think that that the homeownership rate would have declined even more, but for these policies. Now, given the growth in income, even with black households, that just seems unlikely to me, given the age of the population. So it does seem to suggest that either all these programs have been close to ineffective or even in some margins harmful. I also do want to note, I mean, you, since you were having a conversation with your mother, you know, you and I maybe have been the last generation where we heard people talk about like mortgage burning parties. I mean, before 1960, the majority of homeowners owned their homes free and clear. Is it homeownership if you have no equity? And of course, there's a lot of, you know, the market today is dominated in many places by cash sales. So there's some return to that. But I think a problem fundamentally is in Washington, increasing mortgage access is viewed as synonymous with increasing homeownership. And of course, it's not the same thing. I agree. Oh, 
Hey, hey, no, I, I totally agree. No, it's it's a befuddling, uh, certainly, situation. And it's interesting when you look at the policies for the last, say, 100 years in the United States around these things, they've largely been demand-driven policies. Yep. So exp- and, and, and you return, could expand access to credit, lower the, the premiums, the credit premiums, blah, 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 which in the absence of, I guess, World War II, maybe, there haven't been any real meaningful policies to aid in the supply side. Kind of, I think that's largely true. I mean, if you set aside World War II, where we, we largely stopped building because obviously materials were needed for the war effort, you certainly could make a 30s, 50s, 60s argument that it was still relatively easy to build and that if you threw demand subsidies at things, you would see supply come Fourth, and I think that's a largely true story. I mean, I've got some disagreements with a number of the New Deal policies, but the framework of will demand call for supply is not crazy if you think about the 30s and 50s and 60s. It's crazy today. I mean, again, and so we simply have a fundamentally very different housing market than we had in 1930, 1950, even 1970. So I think you have to have these policies that have been on the books since sometimes as much as the 20s. Should we not be trying to design a framework for today? Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and we're not really. So that's the frustrating thing. And some of it, again, as I go back to the point of people just aren't thinking, thinking clearly about it. But, uh, you know, we can turn a little bit more to actual uh, examples and topics if you'd like. Well, speaking of frameworks, you know, it's an interesting time to maybe pivot to a topic that's near and dear to most of us, which is the GSEs and conservatorship. I'll give you a minute to loosen your tie and have a, <laughs> stiff, cock- have a stiff cocktail. But obviously, we're 15 years into conservatorship. I don't think we're any closer to resolving or any conservatorship. I'd probably argue that we're maybe further than ever from resolving these organizations. <laughs> What's your assessment? What's happening at the... Let me say where I I agree and maybe have some some nuanced nuanced disagreement. And of course, as as your listeners may know, I worked on the underlying statute, the Housing Economic Recovery Act. And as I've said on numerous occasions, as the guy who drafted some of the conservatorship receivership provisions, this has not at all worked out the way Congress intended. But that said, if you want to be glass half full, so for instance... There are no more kind of Corker Warner broader debates about starting with a blank slate. So if you remember the Obama years, and of course, President Obama said on a number of occasions that Fannie and Freddie need to go away. And we need to, and again, the approach in Congress, at least in the Senate at the time, was to start with essentially a clean slate and redesign the system from the ground up. That's that's done. That's gone. We're not going back to any of that. And so that's a, that's a bit of a progress. I do think that partly f- during my tenure, but just the change of events is the conversations really narrowed around if and when should they get out and what do they look like when they get out? People have the debates about utility models, things like this. Even, I mean, to, while I think there's zero chance of an exit of conservatorship before 2025, I just don't think there's a real interest. I mean, even though you hear members of the Biden administration kind of play lip service to it. I mean, they don't really deny that there should be an eventual exit. They're just not going to put any effort into it. (laughs) And I don't think they are. Partly because I don't think that they see the status quo as broken, even if they kind of begrudgingly recognize some statutory duty to fix it. So there's not going to be an immediate exit. I would have said probably a year ago that while Republicans kind of bought into getting out there wasn't a lot of intensity behind that feeling. But I'll tell you what I think changed the debate a little bit was really the fight over the LLPAs, the loan level price adjustments. And while a lot of Republicans are not happy with the equitable, equitable housing plans and such, they, they're kind of like, eh, there wasn't a lot of like intensity of opposition. But, you know, and again, I'm not, we don't have to get into debate about how much the LLPA changes were misinterpreted or misrepresented, all that that's a secondary issue. It did kind of wake a lot of congressional Republicans up to say, wow, there's a lot that can be done in this conservatorship in a way that that, that we don't agree with, that that seems beyond what a conservator is supposed to do. So, and of course, you, you know, people have perhaps seen the the Rand Paul Donald Trump letter, 
So I, th- I think the Republican position has shifted toward pressure to do an exit. So I, if there's a change in administrations, and I, I think the election's probably 50-50 today, if there's a change in administrations, I think Republicans would prioritize an exit. And of course, if there's a change in administrations, that means there's an automatic change in leadership at FHFA as well as Treasury. And so I think you would see a different approach. Now, there's always parties who don't want an exit, uh, who prefer the status quo, and, and those parties aren't necessarily always partisan. So there's certainly be lots of bumps as somebody who tried to get the companies out of conservatorship. A lot of pushback from a lot of quarters, a lot of problems you got to solve. It isn't easy, but it's doable. And I think the presumption among Republicans is that there should be an exit. I totally buy all of the above. Uh, I certainly think that Republicans would be more inclined just principally yep. to get the GSEs out than Democrats who I would suspect uh, see the GSEs as probably the purest instruments of public policy related to mortgages relating to real estate. It's off balance sheet. Oh, These yeah. companies are printing money. I mean, what, $7 For billion dollars a year in net earnings? <laughs> That's all I got to go on right now. I mean, is is right now they're selling off, what, 60-odd percent of the credit risk at least? I think it's even first lost position. So anyway, the point is they're charging more than they ever have. They're offloading more than they ever have in terms of credit risk with the CRTs and stuff. So, And so top line, I fully agree that I don't think Democrats by and large see the status quo as a problem. So that I fully agree with you on. Tim, and I even think a second Biden term would likely end with the GSC still in conservatorship. Certainly one of the you know silver linings, if you will, of the pandemic was we were able to reprice extremely large percents of the GSC's book. And I very much remember my conversations with the executives of the companies when, when we had rolled out the capital rule and their response was, you know, well, we can meet this with the new book. But, but the problem is we have a lot of this pre-2008 book that's 12 basis points, you know. And so the fact that the GSEs, we were able to reprice the book in COVID really kind of put them in the best cash flow position they've probably ever been in. And that's a good thing. And so I certainly am not going to be shy to say we did a lot of things that made these companies a whole lot stronger than they would be otherwise. And I think that's a good thing. That said, you know, the housing market is cyclical. This this administration is pushing them to reduce underwriting quality and take a lot more risk than they would otherwise. And even though they've built substantial capital thanks to the efforts that I put in place, it's still not, you know, they're still massively leveraged given the risk that's there. It's a separate debate on the CRT. I, I think it transfers a whole lot less actual credit risk than, than people commonly suppose. So, I, you know, again, I think there are a lot of problems with that. But all that said, Unless we have a severe downturn in the housing market, they'll be able to continue. And I don't even think the Biden administration would push them so far as to as to reduce their earnings to zero or negative. But we are seeing that on a number of fronts. I mean, a good example of this, the Biden folks really pushed them. It's been clear to me, I think, since late you know, 2021, 2022, that the multifamily market's been softening. And what's been the approach of the Biden administration? Oh, let's force the GSEs to do more multifamily. Like the worst, I mean, so much for being counter-cyclical. It's like, as the top is passing, let's add more fuel to the fire. Yeah, it doesn't help the math. Race doesn't help math. It it does not. And so while multifamily ended up not being a problem in a big way, 2008, I think there's a lot of problems in the multifamily brewing in the Fannie and Freddie book. And some of this is the administration pushing them to do deals they shouldn't do and take risks they shouldn't at the exact wrong time in the cycle. And to be clear, when I say race doesn't affect the math, I'm talking about penciling out these new projects, which at these higher interest rates obviously don't work. So I'm preempting any nasty grams that I might get on that subject. You you can just forward them to me. I get plenty. plenty. That's standard operating procedure. So what do you think, though? I mean, the fact that the GSEs are so amazingly financially prosperous right now and that you have the low delinquencies, and you can see, as I mentioned, that the GSEs are truly the most effective, where the rubber meets the road from a housing policy perspective. Does this make it easier or harder to get them out, or does that all just depend on the administration? I I think in some sense it makes them 
easier. It makes them less less attractive. Well, let's start with what this absolutely does, as I, as I mentioned before, it narrows the conversation. So there is no more going back to kind of Corker Warner, burn everything to the ground, start from zero. That's gone. And then the conversation really is about how should they be regulated? And to me, the fact that they can be profitable in this environment you know, one of the really big things, and again, as I said earlier, so many of the debates are really about market share. So obviously, a lot of concern about a stronger Fannie and Freddie comes from the non-bank originators who feel that a stronger, more heavily capitalized Fannie and Freddie would be less competitive. But at the end of the day, I think where we're getting to now is because of what the bank regulators are doing, what CFPB is doing. You know, the, the, the non-bank vis-a-vis the large depositories, it's not really a pricing as much of a pricing competition as it used to be, because I think a lot of the big depositories really just don't want to be in this market anymore. And the plus of that is we can really move past this sense of, well, you know, if we kind of raise G fees or did this and that, which again, 10 basis points in G fees will have zero impact on home ownership rates. People who claim otherwise quite simply, you know, or making it up, to be frank. But it would have impacted market share. And so my point being is, I think there's a compromise here where you can have, because basically what Republicans largely want is A, a Fannie and Freddie that won't blow up and have to be bailed out. And then B, a Fannie and Freddie that's not involved in social engineering. And I think you can get there. I mean, obviously, most of the industry doesn't really care for a lot of the social engineering. They'll live with it when they can profit from it. But I think we're at a point where I'm hopeful most of the mortgage industry can look at this and say, you know, Fannie and Freddie are really important to us. And so it's important to us that there's actually a strong Fannie and Freddie. And that's an asset, not a liability. Yeah. And the social engineering is not free, right? I mean, if you look at, for example, when we really start leaning into those, let's just, for an easy comparison, say over the last 20 years, when I was at Fannie in the early 2000s, the cost to originate a mortgage was about 2,500 bucks. And the president at the time, Mike Williams, had a kind of mandate to get the number below 2,000. And we we were working hard and it seemed pretty doable. Then, of course, the financial crisis happened. You had a lot of thought latency, which referred back to old underwriting policies of the past, which were very manual and kind of leapfrogged all of the technology and innovations that have been developed over that 20-year period. So now you've got a cost to originate of close to $13,000, yeah. which largely reflects, I don't want to, I used to call it a quality tax, maybe when the CFPB first came out and the QM rule came out. And there was a distinction between that demarcation between QM, qualified mortgage versus yep. non-QM. And obviously, the, the QM ones, to be sure that they were QM, required duplicate efforts, triplicate oh, efforts, yeah. then some, to make sure, trust and verify to the nth degree. So that means that everybody bore the higher price. That doesn't mean that it wasn't effective in terms of extending credit to those who would otherwise not have been able to get credit. Well, but again, the point is, it's not free. It's really just a matter of what you're it, measuring. And the the only reason that it was even functional was because that both Dodd-Frank and CFPB, so for instance, Dodd-Frank allowed FHA to write its own QM rule. And what did they do? They wrote it to say, oh, anything that we're basically doing now, <laughs> no real changes. I mean, talk about failing to meet the statutory mandate. And then obviously CFPB, without any basis in statute, Congress rejected. There was a debate about carving out Fannie and Freddie. Congress rejected that. Then CFPB said, well, you know, we're going to reject, we're going to carve them out anyhow. So the reason the housing market has at all functioned post Dodd-Frank is because of all the loopholes and carve-outs, many of which have no basis in statute. So otherwise, if you really truly faithfully followed Dodd-Frank and applied it, it would probably shut the mortgage market down in a big way. And again, and it really is one of these things why we need to revisit Dodd-Frank. It's been a costly failure, in my opinion. That's a big hunk of granite to tackle. Was it I know, and people are wed to it, or at least wed to the you know, the name and the title. Yeah, I can hear the uh, the echoes of people slamming their foreheads into their desktop tables hearing this recommendation. It's, 
Yeah, it's, no, I mean, I, how, I was part of the effort in 2018 <laughs> that gave us extremely modest community bank relief. And of course, everybody, well, the left said, oh, you know, Wall Street giveaways, which of course it was not, if anybody looked at the details. And we really do need, you know, relief for community banks. And I know it's unpopular now, given the bailouts of March. But, you know, we still, this is, we dire need community bank relief. Uh, regulatory, predominantly for a number of reasons, but one of which is the community banks are the primary source of acquisition, development, construction lending. I mean, how, you know, you've really seen this growth and concentration among builders because the bigger builders can finance their operations, but the smaller builders who depend on community banks have been drying up. And so Dodd-Frank has been a modest contributor to the increase in housing unaffordability by restricting the ability of smaller builders to enter the market. It's really just been a disaster. I'm not against, you know, the big guys. Wells has my mortgage and I'm, I'm largely happy with the service servicing they give me. But at the end of the day, Dodd-Frank clobbered little banks, and that's a problem in a big way, because what the community banks do cannot be substituted for large banks. Well, Mark, you did this to yourself. You you led into a discussion around Basel III Endgame, since you're talking about community banks, bankers, and then we can touch on how this ultimately will, among other things, will impact independent mortgage bankers. But no shortage of coverage on the Basel III issues. They just had, what, the CEOs yeah. of uh, major financial institutions testify on the Hill last week. What's your take on the proposed capital changes, and how do you think this might impact financial and operational obligations of, well, well you know, obviously uh, banks, but IMBs, I see, is they're sure. obviously a casualty in this, if not addressed sooner. Sure. And I'm probably in the unusual spot of, you know, if you're going to divide the debate in the two sides, the banks versus the Fed, I, I think they're both wrong to some degrees. Where I am not unsympathetic is I do think our banking system is still more highly leveraged than it needs to be. And I'd love to see more capital in the banking system today than what we've got now. And a lot of what looks like more capital really has just been a shift to assets that have lower risk weights. So I'm not unsympathetic. And, and obviously, with the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and Signature, there are problems that both supervision has missed, as well as regulation has missed. So all that said, if I was at the Fed, I would probably be doing something too. I just wouldn't be doing what they're doing. <laughs> and partly, I think it's overly complicated, pushing a lot of the wrong direction. And of course, you know, the non-banks, I think there's this myth that somehow the depositories are completely out of the mortgage market are out in a big way because the depositories are the primary providers of the warehouse funding that allows the non-bank originators to operate. And to the extent that changes in capital make it far less attractive to do warehouse funding for non-banks, that's going to make it very difficult for a lot of the non-bank mortgage originators. There's been a lot of focus on increased capital weights for higher risk mortgages. I don't really love the way they're doing it, but in theory, I'm not opposed to it. And I think some of the impact on homeownership has been, has been exaggerated. But that said... I would finalize what they're doing is the way they've written it. I really think the Fed should go back to back to the drawing board. Again, I'm in favor of the Fed doing something, just not this. What do you think's behind it then? I mean, it doesn't seem, I mean, I haven't seen anyone who can affirmatively defend well, this and how the impact to the mortgage and housing markets will go unnoticed. The, Obviously, the, the be biggest kind of knock and puzzle is none of it has anything to do with the failures that happened in March. You know, it's completely disconnected. Again, it's like, uh, you know, I was on Capitol Hill as, as right before I, I left in 2009 before Dodd-Frank was passed. But it's it's a good example of a lot of what ended up in Dodd-Frank was stuff off the shelf. Most of what's in the Basel Endgame proposal is stuff that the Fed has been talking about off and on for years. And it really is an opportunity that they see to use kind of SVB as cover to do stuff they've wanted to do that they didn't think they could get through. I would just prefer that we look at why SVB failed, primarily, of course, from its holdings on agency debt, uh, as well as treasuries, and we actually deal with that directly. But the fact that none of this seems to have anything to do with the actual bank failures we witnessed is, is really a tragic disappointment. But again, 
my view is Dodd-Frank had very little to do with 2008. So it's just the typical Washington norm of uh, channeling Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is really interesting because this ties into, I mean, obviously, banks have been playing a smaller and smaller role in mortgage finance since the crisis. So, I mean, their, their relevance in this, this seems to be a solution looking for sort of a problem. IMBs, of course, stepped in and took the market share that the banks yep. left them, which obviously was quite the public service for anybody who's looking to refinance or purchase a house. I, I totally agree with all of that. And I think the non-banks kind of had to step into that that role. But, you know, I mean... I'm not, you can't attribute all of the primary to secondary spread to reduce competition, but some of it is. And I know nobody in the industry really wants to talk about that. But the fact that you have driven so much of the depositories and even the regulation of the depositories has made it tougher for smaller bond banks, we're moving to a world of less competition and mortgage origination. And I think that's not good for consumers. I don't think it's good for the industry. But it is a reality, and it is a outcome of the regulatory structure that the post-Dodd-Frank and, and the current efforts. So I, I do really worry that, again, I think the status quo is deeply broken, but boy, I think the Basel and Gim approach is completely in the wrong direction. Do you think, I mean, coming back to the IMEs in that sense, do you think that Washington fully understands and appreciate the value and the risk from IMBs, any sustained stresses on that market, either self-inflicted or victims of something else? I would say no. I mean, I think the by and large view in Washington is like, if it's not a problem in front of me today, I mean, you really have to remember Washington has an extremely short time horizon. And so I, I do think that people are getting mortgages. So that's what Washington cares about. And so much of the focus is on rates. So much of the focus on other affordability aspects. But it's fair to say that certainly the typical member of Congress or hell, even the typical regulator, they don't fully understand this market. They have at best a surface level understanding of what they're being told. You know, I really saw this. I talk about this in my book as well, because we had this back and forth with the Federal Reserve over whether there should be a liquidity facility for, for non-bank servicers. And I can tell you, my conversations with the Fed I seem to be the only one bringing data and analysis to the table. There really wasn't a lot of deep thinking at the Fed. That's comforting. Yeah. What's what's <laughs> at stake, right? I mean, shared sacrifice, whether it's voluntary or not, is well, I mean, you're gonna upset somebody's too, apple. Right? Yeah, you're gonna upset somebody's apple cart, which is one reason why I don't think this administration I mean, they've got a statutory mandate to fix Fannie and Freddie, get them out of conservatorship, but they're not, because to do so applies annoying somebody. You can't do it without incurring some political cost, and they're simply not willing to incur that. Well, again, you backed into that one. So we did touch on a little bit of the the GSEs and conservatorship and what's been happening at FHFA since since you left in the GSEs. Is there anything that you want to cover on those topics? I won't lead you. Is there anything that you want, <laughs> as you've reflected on, or you want people to better understand around whether it be conservatorship? FHFA and the current status of the GSEs on well, any This is one of the things that that's really troubling coming out of the Collins case. As, as you know, you know FHFA was an independent regulator, and the Supreme Court changed that. And you know, again, I was part of the the, the process that created the statute. We felt very strongly about having an independent regulator, and I do deeply worry about how politicized this process continues to get. And again, it is bad for housing, for financial stability. I mean, housing markets, property markets tend to be at the center of financial crises throughout history. And the fact that this has gotten so politicized and the fact that there seems to be very little interest in the Biden administration in improving the stability of our mortgage market, you know, really is troubling. Again, having worked on the statute, there's a mandate for, I see zero effort toward that. There really has been, you know, an exodus of staff from Fannie, Freddie, and FHFA that I think has has hurt the system. So I think it is certainly concerning. I really put a lot of effort into trying to lift up the morale and the view at FHFA as a world class financial regulator, and so I, I'm disappointed, of course, to see that slip. 
And again, to, you know, I thought we made a lot of progress at the agency and much of that has stayed. But again, the Biden administration just doesn't care about it. And again, they have a responsibility too. And, and it's disappointing that you're really not seeing the effort put in that, that needs to be put in to keeping that a strong agency. So I think at the end of the day, we're really going to see the, the downside of the Collins case, which is a even more politicized mortgage finance system. And at the end of the day, there's very little constituency for, for safety and soundness. So you have people heard me say when I was director, I, I talk about it in the book. It's it, the FHFA unfortunately got to be an agency with a long history of not taking its statutory responsibility seriously. And and I feel like that it's slipping back to its a long-standing culture there. All right. Well, thank you for that. I'm not prepared to say that was uplifting, but I understand where you're coming from. But that well, does. That feeds us nicely, though, Mark, into kind of a closing thought around 2024. This is a big election year. You got a third of the Senate, obviously the entire House of Representatives, the POTUS job. They're they're all up for grabs. I would say the Senate likely is going to flip Republican because there's so many darn. I think there's a high I think there's a high likelihood of that. And of course, Patrick McHenry has announced he's not going to run again. So you'll see a chain. If Republicans keep the House, you'll see a different chair, whether it's French Hill or Blaine Lukemeyer or Bill Huizinga. And you've got, interestingly enough, from the House perspective, and, and Congressman McHenry was always good to me when I was at FHFA. But I think the other potential candidates put housing finance reform higher ranking than I think he does. And obviously, all of his interest was more in the crypto side and stable coins and these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So I think actually you may see more focus on housing finance reform and housing issues. I can tell you from the numerous conversations, French Hill has extremely strong feelings on the GSEs. So if he's chair, you're going to see a whole different world with that. You know, obviously, if the Senate shifts, you know, I mean, Tim Scott, since he's no longer running for president and assuming he doesn't get picked as a vice presidential candidate, which is possible. I think he's certainly on anybody's short list would be a very different chair than I think Brown has been, Sherrod Brown has been. And Sherrod Brown could even lose. He's up for re-election. And while he's a a legendarily strong campaigner, I mean, it is Ohio and it is, you know, a different environment out there. I look at, I think the overall election is probably 50-50. If I had to be a betting man today, it looks like it's probably going to be Trump-Biden, but obviously lots of things could happen on the Republican side. I do think that if Republican wins you'll see a renewed emphasis on trying to fix Fannie and Freddie and get them out. You'll see a lot less emphasis on sort of demand side triggers of like down payment assistance and much of what Fannie and Freddie, the the equitable housing plans would go away. You would see a lot less aggressiveness on certain margins. So it's certainly the behavior there. And of course the behavior at CFPB would, would change as we know, CFPB leadership has put mortgage servicing high on its list of things to target. And so one really big change is unlike, you know, when I was at the White House in 2017, where we were stuck with overhang at both FHFA and CFPB, if there's a change in White House, there's a change in leadership at those two agencies day one. And that was not the case last time. And you, rather than having, say, only two years, you would really see a much bigger change at those two agencies than you did last time around, which quite frankly, I think is needed. So I think you would certainly see a change in direction. But, you know, again, the election has a real chance to to certainly change the trajectory of things. But I will lastly say, again, 50-50. So if there's a second Biden term, I think that you'll continue to see kind of status quo, especially if the Republicans pick up the Senate. You know, there's not going to be a Build Back Better 2 or American Rescue Plan, any of that stuff. It'll be four years of investigations. And I suspect you'll actually see change in leadership where people start to just choose to leave. And I think that will be the case at a FHFA, maybe even HUD. So I think you could see a number of changes in a second Biden term that put a lot less interest on these issues. Wait, hey, I haven't thought about that one. People aren't going to leave when they're okay. Well, that might be worthy of a third. Well, I mean, you know, uh, some of it is, of course, that, I mean, some people have terms. It's not unusual in a second term for people to filter out. Four years, you know, it's a long time. You know, the median tenure, I think, of a 
of a political appointee is more like 18 months. Yeah. And especially if you're looking at, I mean, boy, it's not impossible for there to be a Republican House and Senate and a Biden White House. That doesn't become fun. Your legislative opportunities are largely gone. Your ability to get people confirmed is largely gone. But you know, you're still at that window where if you want to monetize your association to the administration, you kind of have to do it. So yeah, I would expect if there if Biden is reelected, that there to be a significant degree of both voluntary and involuntary turnover at the agencies. Last question for you, Mark, is what are you looking at in 2024 that might change your outlook for you know how these elections will shape up? I'm not talking about inflation, but more things about domestic policy geopolitics. Obviously, we've got wars on multiple continents, maybe another one coming up. You're not kidding. I mean, you talk about trouble around the world. I mean, I'm somewhat skeptical that obviously things like the Iraq war and other in in the past is, and, you know, World War II, if you want to go back to, to Roosevelt. Sure. I mean, the foreign conflicts have an impact on elections, but they tend to be of secondary importance. It really tends to be a focus on domestic issues such as the economy. So, you know, wild card would certainly be, you know, the Dobbs decision and abortion certainly played a role in the midterms. Does that continue to play a role? Does that tend to continue to motivate turnout? The labor market, you know, if we see a softening in the labor market, I think that has some potential. If we certainly see things spiral a little bit more out of control, I mean, obviously Biden has tried to thread a needle when it comes to Israel-Palestine and probably managed to alienate people on both sides of that conflict. At the end of the day, that's a, that's a tough thing to do. Issues along the border, a lot of, even though most sort of local crime issues are fundamentally issues of mayor, governor, I think they do end up blowing back negatively on Biden, despite you know, there's probably been no Democrat president who's been tougher on crime. I mean, this is the guy, the author of the 94 Crime Act, and you know, general perception is that he's weak on crime. So, which is just not, and of course, former prosecutor is, is VP. So, all that said, I really do think it's going to be domestic concerns that drive it with the extreme outlier of things overseas getting even worse and that kind of drawing attention. But, you know, I think the problem that Biden has, and even Trump in a different way, most of the American public has made up their mind about the two of them one way or the other. And there's just not a lot of persuadables, this this would be my view. And it's really going to be fought down to a few states, Michigan, Pennsylvania. So again, it's going to be a close one. I just cross my fingers and hope that we actually perhaps know the outcome of the election on the night of the election. (laughs) Dare to dream, Mark. Hey, man, thanks for doing this. I wanted to cut you off there. That was perfect. Loved having you back on. Thank you for your service. Thanks for making the time. Really enjoyed another great conversation. My pleasure. Be well, everybody. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.